Grab your popcorn and snacks. Find a comfy spot, take a seat or lie down, and let me transport you to a place of fantasy, ghost stories, ancient legends, odd creatures, alien encounters, and other magical topics. You may even decide to join the conversation. From faraway lands to your own backyard, with a small dash of pixie dust, turn out the lights and open your minds. The journey is about to begin. Good evening, everybody. Welcome to California Haunts Radio. Let me push my button. There we go. See, my light's working today. Uh, I want to welcome everybody. It's hot here. You can hear the air conditioner in the background. I apologize if it takes away from the sound quality, but it's hot. It's almost 95. Anyway, I want to welcome you all. My name is Charlotte. I'll be your host for the next hour. I'm also the owner of the California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team based out of Sacramento, California. You can find us at www.californiahaunts.org. Or if you're more interested in what the radio show has to offer, CaliforniaHauntsRadio.com. Uh, welcome tonight. We have a great guest lined up. I'm really excited to talk to this gentleman, Freddie Silva. Uh, I heard him on, and as usual, I heard him on the show, but he talked. He 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 brought up some topics I didn't even think about, and I think tonight we're going to be talking ancient civilization, Anunnaki, you know, some some biblical references, all kinds of stuff. This man's done a lot of research over his lifetime. I'll let him tell you about himself too when when we get to that point. But uh, yeah, like I said, I'm the owner of the California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team based out of Sacramento. And my team is 35 strong up and down the state of California. Uh, we're in nearly every county. So if you might have a paranormal issue that, uh, that, you, know, that you want looked into, get, you know, shoot me a PM on Facebook or contact us at the radio website or even the other website. And we'll get to you because, I mean, if, if, if we're not in your county, you know, we're, we're fairly close by to get out there. And uh, we're out here. Not only to look for ghosts and say you have a ghost, but we're out here to educate about the paranormal as well. You know, um, I've got debunkers. I don't. I hate the word debunkers, but I have my logical folks on staff, and they will look for every logical explanation there is. And then when we can't, then we start looking at paranormal stuff. You know, and try and try try and sort through stuff. You know, it could even be health issues or something going on. We'll figure it out for you. We'll figure it out, and we'll get you the help you need. But anyway, I want to welcome you all, and uh, remember, we are over on TikTok now, at, under California Haunts on TikTok, and uh, we've got some teasers up for some of these shows, and I've got a thing going where I'm doing uh, historical haunted locations, and the results that the team has gotten, and so I'm doing part one and part twos on those, and just starting to get rolling over there, and we're also hit, starting to hit Instagram pretty hard, so uh, stick with us. I think we're going to take you on a real nice ride. If you're watching from YouTube tonight, please subscribe. There's a little ghost down in the bottom right-hand corner. And it has a magnifying He's wearing a, He's holding a magnifying glass and wearing a Sherlock Holmes hat. That's our mascot. We've got more than 250 videos over there. And uh, I think you'll find something you like because it's not just about paranormal. It's about different topics. You know, I'm, I'm a news reporter by trade, and I like to kind of mix it up. So you'll see stuff on spousal abuse. You'll see stuff on... Psychopaths, you'll see all kinds of stuff over there. So just check it out. I think there's something for everybody. Let's see. I forgot there was something else. I was running that through or something else I wanted to say, and I can't remember now. Okay, I'll remember later on. Anyway, without further ado, I'm going to bring our guest on, and he can tell you about himself, and then we'll get into this conversation because I am so looking forward to this. All right, here we go. Freddie Silva. Hello, sir. Good evening. Welcome. Hello to California. I haven't been there for quite a long time. Well, um, 
Too long. It's still California. <laughs> I'm in the hot part. Well, there's two parts of California. There's the north part and the south part, from what I understand. That's right. And, uh, one's very different to the other. Yes, I'm in the. I'm more in the northern part, but it's still, it's still hotter than heck here. Oh really? <laughs> we're, wow. We're just starting. You know, today was 93. It's just starting. We will hit 110, 115 sometimes. Ah, uh, just breaking you in. Like living in hell, but it's okay. <laughs> You know, so tell me about you, sir. Oh, God. Uh, you know, it's always the hardest question to answer. I don't know why. I've been doing this long enough. Um, I'm uh, a best selling author. Uh, I've been uh, investigating ancient civilizations and restricted systems of knowledge for God knows what, 25, 30 years. Um, I've written seven books. Uh, my 14th documentary is about to come out tomorrow. Uh, on the uh, origin of the Maya, which is, uh, that'll be a bit different. Uh, we get to hear about the Maya, but we don't get to hear about what came before the Maya or how they got mm -hmm. there. So that was interesting. Um, and I also uh, take people around the world to actually practice what I preach. We go to sacred sites and actually get to experience the things that I talk about, uh, because we're not just talking about a bunch of rocks and beautiful scenery. We're talking about things which, you know, uh, interact with the human body and to a certain degree, the uh, human mind, and it gets you thinking in a different state of mind so that when you get back to your normal world, you're not quite the same person that when you arrived. And uh, that's the way it's been for thousands of years, and it worked for our predecessors, and it uh, should be pretty good for us too in this uh, strange climate we find ourselves in in the 21st century. Yeah, things are really weird now. You know, things have changed a lot, and, you know, we're going to have to adapt somehow. Yeah, I mean, I mean, change is the only constant, really, isn't it? I mean, nothing ever, if you're a physicist, for example, I mean, you could actually easily argue that the tide never stays in one place. I mean, it goes in, it goes out, it goes in, it goes out. It's the same with life. And I think that uh, thousands of years ago, when uh, our predecessors were talking about interacting with uh, the gods, you know, physical people, just like us, just a little bit different, uh, they're saying, you know, don't be too complacent. You know, once you get to a nice little spot where wherever you live on the land, uh, your life is just settling down. Uh, you should consider moving or adapting every 16 years. Uh, I don't know why they brought that up. Uh, and uh, they said because that's about the, amount, the most amount of time that anybody should have on the planet Earth before they get complacent. And then they take their surroundings for granted. And so you become overwhelmed by your surroundings. You are no longer in tune with your, uh, you know, with nature or with yourself. So it's always good to have a little bit of a spark going on in life that keeps you on your toes, so to speak. Nothing ever stays the same, which I guess is why, you know, uh, animals do it so well. They migrate off and then they migrate south or east or west. And somehow that keeps them going forever, whereas... You know, we can barely hang on to this civilization for more than 10 years before everything falls apart. So I think there's something to the ancient past which is of great use to our educational system. Is that what happened to, like, the Romans? You know, like, uh, the, 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 like the Romans got, the, the Romans, you know, got complacent? The Romans? No, they're just bastards. Uh, they uh, extended <laughs> themselves way too far. But the funny thing is that they inherited something before them. I mean, for example, you get to hear about the Roman roads all the time. And if you go to Europe, and especially uh, Britain, you'll see them everywhere, even to this very day. 
And uh, but they said, well, we didn't build them. We inherited something that was here a long, long time ago. We fixed the potholes. And they didn't do a very good job because whenever you find a Roman road and you dig under the surface, you realize that what was there before the Romans put their stuff on it, it's much better constructed than the, uh, what the Romans did. And when the Welsh were running Britain, because they were the real Britons, mm -hmm. uh, in about 2000 BC, they said, we didn't know who put this stuff here. It was really old by our time. So the Romans were falling on from somebody else. But the whole point of the Roman Empire was really to bring a kind of tyranny to everybody that they felt was unlike them. And because they're unlike them and they considered themselves to be superior to anybody else in the Mediterranean, uh, they had to subjugate everyone and indoctrinate them into their system, which they believed was the best thing in the world at that particular moment. Um, you know, kind of like politics today, you know, you know in America. You know, we believe uh, that, we, you know, we're right and you're completely wrong and we're going to, you know, completely de uh, demonize you. So we had this sort of black and white system going on. And the Romans were pretty much part of that whole thing. And by that time in history, uh, we see not a sort of uh, a comprehensive and um, how shall I put this uh, politely, a sort of an, a, an engaging with nature uh, and with the, your neighbors. You have this confrontation of black and white, uh, again, exacerbated by religion and the organized systems. And you really have to go back another thousand years before the Romans to understand how we got there, because we're talking about a huge climate change that happened in the, in the Near East at the time. There's a lot of uh, solar activity which took out much of the Near East, burnt entire sections of Palestine, all the way up to what today is called Turkey. And it really ushered in the age of uh, fear, uh, brought down the uh, Bronze Age. And at that point, you really see people going from cooperation and collaboration to warfare. Uh, so this is a really modern uh, concept, this, you know, this 3,000-year-old concept that we should be fighting our neighbors all the time because there's not enough of something. Uh, and the Romans were pretty much, uh, you know, what symbolized that concept of taking everything because they're working out of fear. But before that, if you look at any civilization, everybody was pretty much uh, on the whole cooperating because they realized they inherited something from a long time ago. It worked for thousands of years and there was no need to change it. And the more you cooperate, the more everybody elevates themselves at the same time. So yeah, I don't know, actually give the Romans um, too much credit for, for, for much. Uh, whatever, they, whatever they built, uh, and they, they certainly build roads better than we can today, that's for certain. Uh, but um, they really were the kind of the epitome of what it feels like to live in a tyrannical system. Now, going back to, uh, you know, these roads were built way, way back. Let's go back to that time. Because, I mean, when you look at things, because I, I read some of your stuff, you know, about uh, the, the, the Anunnaki, you know, possibly helping people. And, you know, I've also read, you know, Chariots of the Gods and all that, you know, and all that. And that, I find that fascinating that we, you know, and, or rather, I find it agreeable that I think we had help too to build yeah. some of this stuff. I agree with that 100%. I don't think we could have done it ourselves. And I know there's people that don't don't think that way, but <laughs> I think that way. I mean, I mean, the, the, you look at the pyramids, you look at the big stones, you know, it's just how the heck, you know, with the technology that we had back there, that they had at that time, are they going to haul those big stones up? So let's talk about the Anunnaki a little bit. 
Yeah, it's funny that, isn't it? I mean, they could build pyramids which are aligned perfectly to grid north, and yet I'm sitting on a chair that I need to put a matchstick under it in order to stop it wobbling. And we're supposed to be the high point of civilization. You know, I just had an Ikea, oh, maybe I shouldn't say this, or I will anyway, uh, an Ikea shop just collapsed after taking it apart only once. They're great if you put them together once, but when you take them apart and put them back together, it's a bit of a problem. <laughs> um, their structural integrity falls apart, so don't ever, ever unpack pack them uh just put it there leave it and they oh, have a couple of those that's good to know exactly they'll last forever if you leave them alone just leave them alone <laughs> um but no i mean we have to go back to about twelve thousand years to understand what was really really going on and where we are today that's the crux of this uh, historical understanding and that is that um, there was a parallel civilization living alongside human hunter gatherers and i've spent a lot of time looking at ancient people uh, because I do not believe that European culture is the high point of civilization. I do believe that much of it began in the Pacific, of all places. I don't even accept the out-of-Africa thing. I think it was everywhere. Civilization it was everywhere, and everybody got along just fine. That's the funny thing about this. Uh, you don't see a lot of weapons being used in these older archaeological layers. And uh, if you go back to all of their stories, because they have the most wonderful memory, these old people, whether you're in the Amazon or whether you're in the Andes or Yucatan or some Pacific island or even in Japan, the oldest cultures have the best stories. And when I started compiling them from my last book, I began to realize that there was not only an overlap between the stories, there was also identical structure to their description of the gods. Now, a god was basically anybody, like you and me, mm -hmm. who understands the rhythms of nature. If you can copy those rhythms and understand them and bend them to a certain degree within the rules of nature, you become as a god. That's what it meant. Mm -hmm. So they talked about these unusual people who were human-like but not quite human. That was the phrase that kept popping up again and again. And in South America, they call them the high high wapanti. Now, you have to understand what that means in the local language. It means the shining people. Now, if I was in Mesopotamia, that's exactly the nickname that they gave to the lords of Anu, which, that was a sky god, like Ra, for example, in Egypt. Uh, they were called the Anunnaki, the people of Anu. They followed this sky spirit. And uh, they were described exactly in the same way, 6,000 miles away. So they were very, very tall. They were light-skinned, uh, almost Caucasian by our standards, uh, blonde with blue eyes, red hair with green eyes, uh, very tall. Uh, in one Egyptian text, puts them around about eight and a half feet, which is about the size of the skeletons that we find in the giant's graves throughout Britain and in France. Uh, and uh, it's kind of weird when you see them as well. And uh, sometimes they came with elongated skulls as well, which they, they look bizarre, but yet they're very natural. There's a certain natural curvature about them. But when you compare them to the way that humans decided to put planks of wood around the heads of their children to make them look like the gods, they end up looking like cone heads. They look terrible. Uh, if you go to any local museum in Peru, you'll see these people. You'll see this cone head baby, which obviously has been had the skull reshaped. But then you have this other, you know, shining one head. And you think, well, that's actually unusual, but it's actually quite pleasant to look at. And the cranial capacity is much bigger as well. Now, you can shape the shape of your skull, but you can't change the size of your cranial capacity. And these long-headed people had a much greater uh, cranial capacity than human beings. So that backs up immediately what the ancient people were saying. There was a civilization here that knew about the laws of nature, 
how to bend them within the rules, how to create cities of knowledge, as they call them, literally overnight. They moved these enormous stones, they said, to the sound of the voice or a musical sound or a, just a, a high-pitched vibration. And these blocks of stone just move through the air. And I've heard that story all over the world. So it can't be made up. It can't just be something that some sailor took across the Pacific because the stories are too complete and too overlapping. So we're dealing with a culture that uh, basically was a little step ahead of human hunter-gatherers. Now, here comes the flood. Uh, 9,700 BC, these large pieces of a disintegrating, um, like a mini planet, came down onto the Earth like uh, like meteorites, and they hit exactly the places where you don't want it to hit, which is deep ocean ports. Now, when you do that, you're going to create a tidal waves up to three miles high, and that's been proven in Los Alamos Laboratory by, uh, I think it was some branch of the U.S. government. I don't know which one, the ballistics department. Uh, God knows why they're looking into that. Uh, but at that point, uh, according to the surviving uh, scriptures, they talk about how most of the divine inhabitants of this earth also died in this flood. It wasn't just humans. They died too. Uh, they were part of this planet. And they lived on, as far as I can figure out, eight islands around the world. And most of them now under the ocean because the sea level rose when the Ice Age went kaput. So at this moment is where we get into the historical period where humans start saying, oh, we suddenly discovered civilization, mathematics, astrology, astronomy, uh, how to do animal husbandry, and also uh, how to work, make crops work for us so we can basically modify wheat, barley, so we can make bread and things like that. We don't have to go around you know, killing animals to eat. So, but these things happen, didn't happen sporadically. They happened at the same time in history that specific hotspots all around the world, exactly where the gods that survived the flood happened to arrive by boat. So you see this, this wonderful world story where at this point in time, between eight and a half, 9,000 BC, humans miraculously discovered civilization because they came into contact with someone who already possessed those accoutrements. And that's where we became one with the gods. And then they taught us how to get on with our lives. And then they just disappeared quietly into the background. I think they just said, well, we can't really interfere in the natural development of humans. We've already done enough to uh, beyond way and beyond what we were called to do. But you know, what? we had to survive too. There weren't many of us left. So once the humans are set up, they disappear into the shadows and they've been kind of looking, you know, from the sidelines ever since, kind of giving us a little nudge uh, once in a while when we kind of go back by our old crude little ways. So it is a beautiful story, but the fact is that it's shared all around the world with any ancient culture you care to talk to. So it can't be just made up or hallucinated. It had to be an actual eyewitness account. Well, I was thinking, the reason why I was nodding so much when you were talking about the, uh, the skeletons of the giants, there's that report of that cave in Arizona on the Grand Canyon that, that they found, where they found the, 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 the uh, skeletons of these giants in there. And they're everywhere. They're in Nevada. They had a big uh, placement in Nevada and also on Catalina Island off the coast of California. There was a huge uh, grouping, maybe like 18,000 giants used to live there at one point. So when white people finally got there, they realized, uh-oh, 
uh, this doesn't fit in with uh, what we were told about uh, the Bible and the, the, how the world worked. But Native American people knew about them. Uh, and uh, yes, there is a story. I think his name was Kinnaman. Uh, he was uh, climbing up the Grand Canyon, having to have found a, uh, a cave, uh, inaccessible today because the uh, water level is now much lower. Mm -hmm. And uh, we didn't know where it is. He protected it with his life. And the reason why I like the story is because he set up a nonprofit foundation to tell the world about this incredible discovery. And that tells me that there's a, some substance to this because he wasn't making money out of it. You know, he actually took a huge hit, not just for financially, but also from his friends who, you know, thought he was gone completely cuckoo. That tells me a lot about the character of this individual. And uh, since then, the area, the general area that we believe the cave to be has been sealed off by the NSA. Now, that tells me that there's definitely something very weird going on. Even the Navajo who own the land are not allowed in that area. Now, that tells me a lot about a conspiracy. I was going to say, do you think, you know, that, like you say, they're still observing us. So do you think that there's times when they actually step in to help us, to help the government or, or whatever, you know, to create stuff or, or keep things going? Maybe that's why. I don't know. I mean, I was one of the, um, not the pioneers. I kind of came after the pioneers of the crop circle phenomenon, mm -hmm. which uh, to kind of a very long story short, these are the same people that we're talking about in uh, the early text. They're called the watchers, who are the go-betweens between the lords of Anu and everybody and the human hunter-gatherers. And um, they basically just wanted to give humans a little bit of uh, help, and then they go back into the shadows. Uh, they get cast in a very bad light because of uh, the Bible, uh, which is a, a terrible book to read because it borrows so much and alters so much from the Babylonian story, which had already been politically changed from the Sumerian story. So you've got to go back to the original to find out what really was going on. Uh, and there were a few, a small group of watchers that really got the plot wrong and they did some awful things. But we forget that, you know, uh, there's always a small group of people that get all the attention, but we forget about the large group of people that are doing very good things, uh, just like today, everywhere in the world. Uh, so um, where was I going with the story? <laughs> uh, are they helping the government? Um, I don't know. Um, I think that they probably don't live, um, they're not no longer in physical form. When I was studying the, uh, the crop circle phenomenon and, uh, and wrote a best-selling book on it, which actually I just re-released after 20 years, the demand is still there. One of the things that we learn is that they're trying to imprint the same information that they did in ancient sacred sites using crop circles, you see. And then, of course, the British government comes up with two guys as the makers of all crop circles. Now, we debunk them totally. Uh, of course, you don't get here our side of the story, that they made this story up. Uh, the British government even invented a fictitious press agency in order to put these two idiots into the public arena. But, you know, once you put some doubt into the story, half the public just says, okay, I'm out of here. It's all bullshit. Uh, that's a very simple way to get people to fight about this phenomenon. And they're still fighting about it today. But the one thing I learned was that they're trying to do uh, send information into our physical world because they're no longer in physical form. And they're saying, you're in deep trouble. Uh, humanity's in deep trouble. And the earth needs to evolve as well. It's an organism. And you're not prepared for the changes that are coming. We're buying you time to get your act together because changes are upon you whether you like it or not. And the method of your survival depends on how you handle the coming changes. Some of you won't make it, but some of you will 
because that's the way it's always been. You right. know, we've had 13 near end of civilization scenarios since the Great Flood. We, we forget about this. Mm -hmm. uh, and one of the things that I learned is that they are not contacting anyone directly. They're just putting information in front of us and letting us figure out the outcome and empowering ourselves by decoding the symbols, which we're actually quite successful at doing. And uh, to prove my point, my phone back in the days when there was a landline with a cord. Now, anybody who's a bit under 30, you'll have to Google this. Don't do that. And my, my phone used to, used to be bugged. And you could tell because there was a, a delay in the click and also because I used to feed wrong information on the phone and I'd watch the British military act on it. And it was very funny. Uh, they kept a tab on me, but I kept a tab on them. And we feed them all kinds of nonsense and watch them going into the wrong field, mm -hmm. you know, with camouflage, waiting for a crop circle to appear. And we know that it was going to appear five fields this way. It was really, really quite funny. So we know that they were, the military were not involved. And we know also that by the fact that we were not assassinated, that they relied on us for the information. So I'm not sure if there's any direct contact going on. But let's look at this from the human point of view now. Uh, not all humans are nice people. Uh, there's quite a, 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 a small but significant number who are complete and utter bastards. You know, I won't mention a country right now that's invading another, behaving exactly that way. So all things being equal, I think it's the same in the alien or the non-physical realms. I think that there's also a lot of advanced people out there, uh, and I do believe this, uh, but there's also a small number of them who also are not doing things for the right reason. They've got their own agenda. Uh, right. The greys are something I hear about from people who work in the UFO environment, who know about this more than I do. And they talk about the greys usually being the problem. You know, it's like they're in between worlds. They don't know where emotions come from. That's why they're grey. And it seems that perhaps some of them may be working for nefarious means with it, with certain people within the government. Because let's face it, the government is too big and too um, dysfunctional for it to actually form any kind of conspiracy. I think there's people who are hiding within the big tentacle of government that are doing stupid things with people from somewhere else for God knows what means, we just don't know. So all things being equal, I think that would be quite correct. But I still believe that the uh, the harmony and the goodwill that comes from the majority is still there and it will prevail. Well, this is why I was wondering if they were still kind of helping us because like you say, there, there have been 13 times or more that the rebuild has, you know, the, the reset or rebuild has occurred. Yeah. And when you go back and then you look at, I'm going to go back to Vandonica, Vandonica, you know, the hieroglyphs showing light bulbs and stuff like that you know those ideas and i agree with you they're not physically here they're putting the ideas in, in their heads yeah which is why you got you got a rebirth of, of, of people inventing the light bulb you've got this going on uh but it's not a light bulb though you've got to understand the symbolism okay. and what's around it it's uh, uh he's gone i think he's smoking a bit too much on that one uh, okay. if you actually look at the panel and there's actually six panels and look at the hieroglyphs and the story that's telling you it's actually a lotus it's the auric field around the lotus which is hallucinogenic that was taken in those chambers to have an out-of-body experience and it's all listed you have to read the other hieroglyphs around them to get the whole picture yeah, I thought so too until I've, I've been there so many times and I've seen them so many times. I thought, no, it's not a light bulb. You can see the lotus bud at the end. It's the aura with the serpent inside it because that's the hallucinogenic. Um, but, uh, but that said, 
Uh, no, there was a time when um, I was privy to a specific group in England who uh, we were headed by an incredibly talented and gifted uh, um, psychic. Uh, she actually works with the police to solve uh, major crimes. I mean, she has a near 100% record uh, on solving cases. So it's in her family's blood. She's an incredible talent great friend of mine, and we were privy to a lot of this information about the fact that, uh, you know, the uh, these people have come back again, you know, communicating with us through the crop circles, right. doing, you know, building them in the same way as they would a pyramid, but just, they're just using the same technology to flatten crop. It's quite amazing. Um, but at the same time, they're also saying that they have come at different points. They've physicalized at different points in our history when we've really lost the plot and we're up against it. And they said that one of your times was in one of your periods when we uh, did some rebuilding work around Giza. And I thought, wait a minute, this would have been about 2500, 2600 BC, which is that very sort of strange date when the, all the archaeologists think that the pyramids were built. But they weren't. The pyramids have been there for much, much longer. What they did was they refinished the pyramids. They also did a lot of uh, major uh, work to because the pyramids are in such a terrible state of preservation. And you can see it today. They have been uh, refixed and re, uh, and repolished at the base. And uh, around that time, the Earth was also hit by a lot of meteorites and a lot of uh, solar activity. And it really changed the climate uh, all around the Earth. And that's when you get the intervention, again, of some very tall people with elongated skulls, uh, specifically in India and in Egypt. And they're actually described, I mean, uh, Tutankhamun and Akhenaten, the two of that last of that bloodline. And you can still see the shape. They're not quite human, but they're not quite alien either. They're in the middle. And that was the whole point. And what they were telling us is that they appeared at certain strategic times in our history when we are again, really up against it and we didn't know what to do. And they become the teachers and the thinkers in each of the tribes. They incarnate to follow that. And they remember what they came down here to do. So they actually behave like humans. They try to blend in. You know, they're very, very tall. They have these strange looking skulls. So they wear these strange, what they call the crown of upper and lower Egypt, which is complete nonsense. They're trying to hide the, uh, the shape so that people accept them for being normal. That's why they do why they're hiding it. And you can actually find them in the historical record if you look hard enough. And then once they've implemented things and implemented changes and uh, sensible laws, they move back out of sight again, back into the shadows again. So there is a trail of evidence into our historical period that shows that we do get a lot of assistance from period to period to period. And right now we're in one of those periods. Now, earlier you said that the Bible um, isn't as accurate as, as people would like it to be. Why is that? Were they just trying to doctor it up to, to, so people had something to believe in? Or was it just to, to, you know, to, to, too many people writing? <laughs> uh, both uh, and something else. Uh, you have to go back to the time when this was happening. So the, um, the Hebrews, the Israelites, they're on captivity in Babylon. Uh, they're a nomadic tribe. Uh, they've got nowhere to call home. I mean, like pretty much everywhere else in the Middle East at the time, everyone was a nomad, unless you're a Canaanite, uh, where you already had the land of Canaan. Uh, the Palestinians were there under a different name and so forth. Uh, so they find themselves in, um, in Babylon and... Uh, they figured, well, you know, it's about time that we put down some roots. And um, we really need to sort of establish some kind of a blueprint that gives us some kind of jurisdiction in which to create an entity, 
uh, around. We have, to, we have to have God uh, in our midst so that we can basically focus around a certain God. So they were not privy to what was going on in the Babylonian temple. That's only the priesthood that was allowed in there. But they would hear stories. Uh, you know, they'd go to the pub, uh, hang out at the coffee shop, and they go, oh, that's, that's an interesting story. And they would write it down. But the problem is, and if you read the Bible, and I'm not being biased about this, is you can actually do the homework yourself. Um, if you actually read the Bible, little of it makes any sense. It's like it's been cobbled together from hearsay, from facts, and from conjecture. And then you go, well, now it makes sense, but it, it really doesn't, you know, when you think about it. There's no sort of triangulation. There's no continuation. Everything's a mishmash of ideas. And the Babylonians at the time, after the uh, Israelites left, they said they were really pissed off with them. They said, you know, they they were they were living here. You know, we allowed them to leave to go back to the Near East, and they stole all our information. But they changed all the stories, and that's where the historians with an open mind decided to look at this story. And they said, actually, if you look at the comparison between the Sumerian texts, which were already five thousand years old by the time the Sumerians got hold of them, um, and compare them to the Bible, now you see the overlaps. And you see how people's names have been changed and how the locations of sacred mountains have been changed to make the Hebrews uh, feel superior to everyone around them. But the thing is, the Babylonians have been doing that to everybody else as well. So it's a case of the, the, you know, the kettle calling the pot black. Uh, everybody was at it. They all wanted to be superior to everybody else. And that essentially is the root of the problems that we have today in the Near East with all those different cultures. It's about someone taking over someone else else's divine uh, book and then making sure that they are superior to all their people around them. Now, one of the great examples is Enoch, the book of Enoch. Uh, it's a great book. The problem is Enoch is not the real name. The real name is uh, Emed Ur Anu. He was one of the Anunnaki. He was a scribe that was not quite good enough to be with them, but it was also too good to be a hunter-gatherer. That's why he was chosen as a scribe to write down his experiences. Now, just at that point, you get to realize how much of the Bible has been altered. And the other problem with the Bible was that in order to find the central God figure, they had to reject all the other gods of the region. And there was a lot of gods at the time. So one of them was Anu. There was Ara of the Armenians. And also, uh, who was a very, very big character, by the way, because it's the same god as Ra, or Ara, the house of Ra of Egypt. And Armenia and Egypt share a common uh, understanding in terms of cosmology. So the, um, uh, they began to go around Sinai, and they heard of this guy called Yahweh. Well, they managed to make Yahweh the head honcho of their pantheon, and they rejected all other gods before Yahweh. Now, the problem is Yahweh was the Bedouin god of war. When your religion is founded on the god of war, it's not going to end well for anybody. Uh, and, you know, and again, I'm not being biased. This is a, a fact that anybody can check up if you've got about 10 years of time to look at the information. And there's a little bit, a lot of, a lot of good historians looking into this um, to show that as, you can only trust the oldest surviving manuscripts, which are the Sumerian. And when you cross-reference those with what was happening in the Pacific and in Peru, you begin to realize that there are certain strands of truth here or at least as close to the truth as you can find it. And that's why I like going back to the origin of things and talk to people who've been around a long, long time, way before us, because they know more than we do, because all of their stories come from experience and also from eyewitness accounts. This is absolutely fascinating. And in the meantime, you know, you got the Bible stories, you got the Anunnaki there. Were they worshiping, you know, their gods, obviously, were these the Anunnaki that they were worshipping? 
Were they? As far as you know, thinking about their particular gods, like the like the sun gods and whatnot, were they worshiping the Anunnaki? No, the Anunnaki were the people of Anu. Uh, Anu was a sky god, kind of like the sun. Uh, it was akin to Ani, Anna, and Ara. Okay. So depending on which region you're in, whether you are in India, the Middle East, or Armenia, it's the same uh, entity. It's kind of like Ra. It's the, yeah. solar, the solar principle from where everything comes from. Uh, so they were just worshippers of this sky god, nothing more to it. Okay. Uh, if, and uh, it, it's, a very, uh, it's a very fragmented story because not much of it survived. I mean, the people who really knew the story, the Armenian people, have been mostly massacred. Uh, there's not many of them left. So I'm only just now beginning to understand how deep those, uh, uh, that their history is by the, the last book that I wrote, and I'm getting in contact with people who really are desperately trying to tell the world because no one ever thinks about Armenians anymore. And they're saying, no, we're here. We're still here. And we've got stories that are so old that need to be told that show the foundation of all Western thinking. Uh, it's not because we're trying to be better than anybody else. It's just that the stories are so old and they make a lot of sense. And, and they really do make a lot of sense. So they're, not, they're just worshipping an entity. But eventually, and this is where it gets difficult, confusing, and also exciting, because... Like I said, a god is someone, uh, uh, any ordinary person can become a god if, for example, I take this cocktail glass <laughs> and I understand the glass and how it works and how the methodology is of taking the atoms to change this glass into something else. That makes me a god. I understand the laws of nature. Now, when you do that, you take on the entity that's behind that. So if I am, for example, looking at the concept of the sun, how the sun works and it keeps the earth in its gravitational form and it also keeps life here uh, in, in, a, in a pretty cozy state, I can now take on the name of Anu. I am a lord of Anu. So it's not just now an ethereal concept, it's also an individual. And that's where we get the other gods like Enki and Enlil, uh, who then are not just names, they're actually titles. So there were quite a few Enkis just like Osiris wasn't one individual, if you, uh, you know, as an individual, if you learn the concept of Osiris and what he stood for, you become an Osiris. Uh, so there was many of them. There was many Isis for that matter. And it drives historians crazy because they think there's only one. But you have to understand it wasn't a name. It was a title. It was a way of thinking. Uh, a bit like saying, I am, I am Maori. Uh, well, there's no such thing as Maori. Maori is a spiritual ideal. And when enough people follow that ideal, they become a nation of Maori. It's something that you aspire to become, not what you're born into. Uh, and that came from a Maori elder. So uh, I didn't see that one coming. That was very educational. I just find it interesting because, you know, the, the Greek, with Greek mythology and their gods, you know, and, and then you've got the Roman mythology, and all, like you say, all these different deities. And I don't know, was it creative writing that brought these people up or was it just maybe alien intervention? You know, it was the aliens that, that they were seeing or what? It's hard to say uh, with the Greeks. We start off with the Greeks because they're the ones who really were the progenitors of the, uh, the Romans. By the time the Greeks got hold of the Egyptian stories, which is where most of the, uh, their concepts come from, they already had no idea what was going on because the language barrier was getting in the way. And there's one wonderful uh, moment that survives at the time when this Greek historian is visiting uh, what is now Alexandria. And uh, one of the priests there says to him, you know, you Greeks are so young as a civilization. 
Wait till you've been around like we Egyptians have for over 40,000 years when we've seen the sun set where it now rises and watch it uh, rise where it now sets. So in other words, they've been around so long, they've seen the earth revolve in the wrong, uh, wrong way. And also the planet at one point was even upside down because for them, more for south. Uh, so they've been around for a long, long time. So the Greeks are now trying to borrow from the Near East, from the uh, Middle Eastern studies and from the Egyptians, and they're creating their own pantheon uh, for reasons that we don't know. But if you look at their stories, they are really obtuse and hard to understand. It seems like they're describing a very dysfunctional family. But within the framework of the Egyptian myths, you get a hint of that Sumerian background of, you know, if you read the two stories side by side, you go, yeah, there was definitely a sort of um, a translation from this to that, but something got lost in the translation along the way because by that time, Sumerian was a dead language. It had been taken over by Akkadian, and they had already mistranslated things, again, for political reasons, to make themselves look better than everybody else. Right. So the Greeks are inheriting something that's already convoluted. So, of course, when we read it, it's like, none of this makes a lot of sense. The gods don't seem like very interesting people. They're always, you know, shagging their sisters or uh, there's a lot of uh, fornication going on with other people's wives. Poseidon is always laying waste to anybody that builds a temple by the ocean. So by the time the Romans come along, now we've got a, a bit of a problem because not only does, does nothing make any sense, now they want to turn the whole thing into a state religion so they can become a place of worship so that you have people called priests and the emperor who are essentially intermediaries between you and God. There's someone that's come between you and your own divinity, which is impossible because you are an expression of divinity already. No one can take that from you. So you've already got a big distance that's going on. And that pretty much leads us to the problems that we have today with organized religion and every other form. Everything becomes separate from nature. So, yeah, it's a, it's a very entangled web that we weave. But if you go back to, you know, indigenous people yet again and just go to the Amazon and sit there and listen, the stories are still as consistent as they were 10,000 years ago because it was a privilege to take on the role of wisdom keeping. And the idea was that you take 10 years to memorize everything until you got it right so that you wouldn't make up stuff and there wouldn't be any Chinese whispers set into the story. What do you find to be the most interesting ancient civilization and why? Oh, that's impossible to say. I think they're all interesting for their own reason. Um, the one that I was recently enamored with, and I still am, uh, when I was, I was researching material for the missing lands about looking at the uh, who the gods were, where they lived, no one has, ever asks that. They talk about all the buildings that they created, but no one ever asks, well, who were these people? What were they like? Where did they live? Where did they come from? So, and there are a lot of very terrestrial and mundane explanations. And one of them I found in the weirdest of places that you'll ever find, which is New Zealand. Now, from the European point of view, New Zealand is the last place on earth to be colonized. Well, yes, if you're a European and you think you're the best thing that's ever happened to the earth, New Zealand is the last place that white people got to. Well, unfortunately, people have been there for thousands of years. Uh, way before the Maori, there was another culture there called the Waitaha. And uh, I found their oral tradition that was only recently published. And they've kept this going for over 10,000 years. They describe a time when they were living on Easter Island when they called it an archipelago. Not an island as it is today, but when the sea level was 400 feet lower, it was a series of islands. Now, they would only know that if they knew geology and also oceanography, which they don't. 
at least not as far as I'm aware. And they talked about a time when the gods used to visit uh, once in a while. They used to come from a place in the, a big land in the east called South America, where they had already an ancient civilization up in the Andes. And then they would go to Easter Island, the navel of the world. They would tell stories. They would give information to the tribe. Uh, and, they, uh, and the people would put the information to these baskets of knowledge that would help them uh, as, a, as a tribe to evolve. And then the gods would take on some water, some fresh food, and then they would leave on their catamarans to a, pl a place called the birthplace of the gods in the South Island of New Zealand. And I can tell you, I've been there six times. I cannot get enough of it. It's beautiful absolutely beautiful and it's very palpable as well as, a, as an energy form uh, if you didn't think that you were psychic just sit there for a few minutes and you will realize you are very psychic you can pick up all kinds of things going on down there so the white heart have left us this incredible account which they maintain from generation to generation about their interaction with the gods what they were like what they were going to what they were why they were traveling to from here and there and even an account of when their catamaran was caught in the middle of the Pacific during the Great Flood. And they said, thank God that they were in the middle of the Pacific because had they been near the continental shelf, the tidal waves would have wiped them out. It was the sheer luck that they were in the middle of the ocean, that they were just uh, you know, uh, accosted by very large waves, but nothing too terrible that didn't allow them to survive. And uh, the funny thing is that that story tracks into the Aboriginal stories of uh, Australia, and it also connects to South America and also by linguistics to Egypt. And these people, they were saying, they could travel across the oceans as easily as you and I go shopping for a can of baked beans. It was that easy. So there was no flying sources. There was no stories of other world stuff. Mm -hmm. That really came uh, from other cultures that talked about how a long, long time ago, and I suspect now that we're talking about tens of thousands of years, because they don't keep time like we do. They talked about a time when they can go backwards and forwards using these flying shields that the Hopi called them uh, to go from A to B. And the B was the uh, belt stars of Orion, which is why Orion is so predominant as a uh, constellation in every single indigenous story around the world. They called it the birthplace of the gods and also the place where humans also uh, at one point came from. But over time, they forgot how to go to get there and come back. So they built big temples in order to if, uh, re um, recreate the physical uh, uh, stratum and the electronic stratum in order to get them from here to there. And even then, they forgot uh, how to do it. So they're required to go to Orion using shamanism, which is what they do to this very day. So that's my favorite um, group at the moment. I'm totally enamored with them because I learn something new every single time. I, I just shut up and listen at that point because, you know, their memory is incredible and it's still sure. intact. Sure, sure, sure. What about the Nazca lines? What happened? Sorry, it sounds like you're, you're in like a phase. I am. It's like I'm back there, the air conditioner. What? what what about the Nazca lines? The Nazca lines, you know what? I have absolutely no bloody idea. <laughs> it's the one thing I cannot give any answer to. Um, and I don't know anybody who really has. I mean, some of them have definitely have uh, astronomical markings. I mean, you can actually run these lines on the horizon. You can see that they're trying to gauge things popping in and out of the mountains and the ocean like an intercardinal horizon. So they're obviously tracking something. But if you look at them carefully from the air, you'd also see that they've been added to over many periods of time. There are some which belong to a certain design phase. And you have to, you don't have to go into art college to really understand this. It becomes obvious when you see it. Uh, and then there's another group that hasn't got the same finesse, which are lying, uh, which are much clearer. 
Uh, and then there's another group which is completely designed almost like by a teenager uh, on dope. Uh, the fact is that the, you have to understand how the altiplano works. These things are only etched into the soil this deep because what happens is there's not much rain there, obviously, and the soil, because of the mineral content, oxidizes, so it turns a dark color. So all you have to do is run your finger through the soil and you create a lighter soil under it. That's how they're made. So the concept that, that, uh, of these being runways is absolute nonsense. It, you just can't, it doesn't work. If people were landing ships there, they would have destroyed everything because the soil is so, it's almost like hard sand. That's what, exactly what it is. So we, we simply don't know. Uh, we know that they can be seen from the air. That's the only way you can present it. So are they um, symbols of appreciation to the gods? Uh, possibly. Are they guideposts to astronomers? Absolutely correct as well. In fact, there's a, a big candelabra, that's what people call it, not far from there, uh, called the, uh, the, the candelabra of Paracas. Uh, and uh, there's this three enormous flaming things. For me, the, actually the tree of life, that's what it represents. And it has a, a perfect triangle. And I actually found that if you take that triangle shape and put it in the three places where the gods are associated with, uh, it marks the entire landscape temples of their culture. Uh, so they're giving a roadmap as to what they're doing. Now that I believe to be associated with the gods. The Nazca lines for the rest part is we just have to keep throwing darts at the dartboard and hoping that we find something that makes a lot of sense. I mean, even Maria Rilke, who uh, she lived there for, what, 60 years? Mm -hmm. The short German woman. I mean, she devoted her entire life to it. And at the end, I don't think she even drew a perfect conclusion. She's still just shooting darts at the board. Uh, they're good darts and it's a good board but she's still short of the absolute answer. So it's one of those enigmas which is going to, you know, annoy us for the rest of our life. And I hope it does because you've got to have something to keep you going. You know, you've got to keep your quest alive. Absolutely. Question in the chat room, you may not know the answer. Um, were they there before the flood? Or after? Oh, absolutely. Or the, or the Nazca lines? Yeah. No, they weren't. Again, for the very reason that if you go there and if you only have to actually, if you go walking uh, in Nazca Plain, you actually leave footprints. So if you imagine a lot of water going through the area and a lot of water hasn't been there for at least 5,000 years, uh, it would have destroyed everything. So it has to be younger than at least 9,700 BC, which is when the um, geological date for the flooding took place. Um, as to dating, we can't date it at all because there's nothing there that's organic that survives that we can date. And on top of that, the only last clue is that if you take any of the lines that make any sense uh, in terms of astronomy, um, you can actually give it a certain date because you can calculate how much the sun, the planets have moved relative to the horizon and then when things line up. Uh, I think there was one gentleman who actually worked that out and I can't um, remember if he came up with a date or not. Uh, but I suspect that they're much younger than we uh, we uh, think they are because the Altiplano has only been dry for the last four and a half thousand years. So they couldn't have been built before that. Now, earlier you talked about the, uh, the Valunaki, you know, not taking a physical role in the world like it is now. You know, well, they're kind of, you know, step, you know, take a step back and mentally communicate however they're doing it. Are they giving us just enough tools so that we can create you know the stuff we need to create and then they're watching to see what happens oh i think everybody is involved in our development because whatever we do down here is not separate from anything in the universe mm -hmm. i mean we are connected by time and space but also by molecules 
uh, and by electromagnetism, by gravity, we are this, made of the same stuff that the universe is made of. So our thoughts and our intentions, which we can now measure in the laboratory, which have an electromagnetic fingerprint, our thoughts and emotions echo into eternity and they have repercussions. So if I send a thought of hate to planet Nibiru, uh, something horrible is going to cascade from there because if my intent is strong enough and focused enough, that focus will get there at some point. Uh, so if we let off an atomic bomb, that's even worse because now we're setting up all of these ripples of distortion in the space-time continuum. And everybody in the universe is very concerned about us and how we're developing. So they're very much in, um, uh, into what happens here on Earth because they have a vested interest. Our outcome is going to determine how their development also proceeds. If there's a good outcome for us, they can get on with their lives and move on in their development as well. So by helping us, they're helping themselves too. And that goes back to what I was saying before, the oldest cultures in the, on the planet who survive as a civilization for thousands of years did so because of cooperation. They may have been different, they may have worshipped different things, but they cooperated, and that's the key to everything. So they're cooperating with us, but if you take the analogy of, let's say, a group of anthropologists who goes on a nice field trip to New Guinea, mm -hmm. and where there's nobody living, and whoops, suddenly we bump, bumped into a bunch of people who are living there, they're not wearing any clothes, and they suddenly look at us and go, wow, who are these people dressed in these strange things? And they're wearing unusual reflective things on their wrists. And they, you know, they have things on their ear and they, they, they're doing this to us. Well, you've just altered uh, irretrievably the direction of that culture. And this happened back about 40 years ago in uh, Papua New Guinea. And the anthropologists were, uh, you know, they were horrified. They said, oh, damn it, this, this shouldn't be happening. And they came back a year later and they hid behind bushes with big binoculars to find out had they had any particular change on the uh, style of the culture, at least visually. And yes, suddenly there was a hierarchy. There was a guy sitting on what looked like a, uh, a raised throne and he was sitting there with a banana leaf wrapped around his uh, uh, wrist because that's what the gods that came out of the jungle were wearing. And now suddenly you've got this two-tier system, but before there wasn't one and they're wearing clothes now because they suddenly realized, oh, it's cool to have clothes because that's what they wore and they looked like they were better than us. So I think that any advanced culture, uh, and I use the word alien very loosely here. Um, I'm talking about anyone who's not from the, the neighborhood. Um, anyone from an alien culture would also understand if they had the gift of space travel, they're way ahead of us. Whether they behave better than us or not is beside the point, but they are way ahead of us technology. So they would also consider that in their way that they interact with us. So the idea of making crop circles is actually very beautiful and very elegant. Uh, we have got uh, God knows how many new mathematical theorems out of the crop circles. We have a technological blueprint, which was etched out in 1991, which is the image that I put on the cover of the book because I knew from the channel material what it is and what it does. I just couldn't talk about it because the idea was the visual had to be imprinted into the heads of certain scientists and they would go on to develop a real anti-gravity device. Well, guess what? 15 years after that was published, three scientists in London, in Oklahoma of all places, and in Australia have built that in a, as a 3D model, and it defies gravity. 
And they're just waiting for the right political moment to bring this out to the public because like the guy who built the water-powered vehicle in Seattle who gets run over by his own vehicle, um, they recognize that when you open your mouth at the wrong time, you're likely not to survive. So this is all now already in the work, and this comes from the technological blueprint, which is part of the information that was encoded in the crop circles. So this is what I mean by saying that they have a vested interest in us, but we have to be the ones we're waiting for, you see. We have to implement that, and then, you know, hopefully things will turn out just fine. But it's getting a little bit hairy, I have to say. I think the uh, the window is getting a little bit closed. We're taking it right up to the uh, uh, the last minute. What do you see happening? Oh, God, I don't know. I, I could be a millionaire if I could predict that. <laughs> um, you can't predict it, and you know why? Because everything is changing minute by minute if someone made a prediction 20 years ago and they were very good at what they were doing mm -hmm. because of the way we work as a unit as a human consciousness it only takes a certain percentage a, a tiny percentage of the human race to formulate an idea that gets into the national into the international stream that alters the development of and direction of human nature and human culture that's already altered the outcome of the prediction so the prediction is only as good as the moment that you make it based on the elements available to you at that moment. So right now, I think we're in deep doo-doo uh, based on this exact moment. But uh, I do believe, looking back at what we've done in the past, it's usually taken a major catastrophe of nature, whether you call it outside intervention from asteroids or solar flares, which are happening all the time, by the way. They've happened 13 times since the flood. Um, we always manage to survive. Uh, people always die. People always survive. The trick is not to go back to uh, to the Stone Age, pick up from where the predecessors left off, take the good things and find out how can we make things better for ourselves? Where did we go wrong? You know, do we really have to keep bombing each other and arguing over who's the best God? Well, perhaps they're all the best gods. You know, if it makes you happy and you respect other people, then it works out pretty well. It's just a matter of mutual respect. And I think the outcome will be fine based on previous experience. But again, I think with humans, it takes, it's always the, the small number of idiots that make life so difficult down here. Uh, I mean, I travel around the world all the time. I speak to so many people. I see nothing but good things. I, I, I've, I've spoken in Ohio, which is an intensely conservative state in America. And yet I find more people coming out of the woodwork in Ohio to my lectures in places that I have to Google to find out where I'm going. I've never heard of these towns and the, the place is packed. And I'm thinking there's a lot of people who want to hear what I have to say because they're doing exactly the same thing. And that encourages me that they're not, they're not attracting any attention. And I used to work in the media for 14 years to tell you, uh, A, there's no conspiracy unless you were working for extreme right-wing or extreme left-wing uh, people, in which case there is some kind of a vested interest. But for the most part, they don't publish good news because it doesn't sell newspapers. That's the only reason why it's always so negative. It, we, are, uh, we are addicted to chaos and conflict uh, as, a, as a species. We really are. I mean, there was a newspaper in Britain that was uh, created, I believe, around 1910. And they published nothing but good news. How long did they survive? 30 years, I believe, because people got tired of reading about good news. They wanted conflict. It's like, let's find out about a, a Second World War. Great. Now we've got something to read about. Uh, so you see, it's almost like the human race is hardwired for a bit of conflict. It's almost like a Monty Python movie, isn't it? I agree with you, Bill. I agree with you 100%. You know, people like, people like that, you know, uh, like to see that struggle. Yeah. That's what they like. That's, that's what they tune into. 
And what I say to people is, you know, it's uh, by all means. I mean, don't live like a, a hermit unless that's your thing. Right. Um, you've got to find out what the snakes are up to. You know, by all means, scan the headlines because you've got to keep track of what you're doing. You're in the world. You're part of the world. You can't just, you know, become an island. It doesn't work out too well for you in the end. Right. Um, just keep track of what the snakes are up to and don't pay too much attention unless there's something that you can actually directly influence. Yes, you can send prayers. Uh, that doesn't hurt. In fact, it usually helps quite a lot. Um, but at the same time, unless you can, can't have a, a direct influence on the outcome of things, then leave it alone. Empower the people that can and get onto the, uh, your life and do the things that you can change. Locally, for example, build a garden, uh, do a recycling center. I mean, here in Portland, Maine, I'm, I'm amazed how much recycling there is, how many uh, communes there are uh, with people. We have a huge gay and lesbian community, mostly a lesbian community. And I like that because they make the strongest coffee. And I love strong coffee. I can't get coffee until I go to the what they call the lesbian coffee house here in Portland. And they love me because I'm the only guy in there. And I'm thinking everybody's got their purpose in life. And, you know, for me, I'm very comfortable with everybody if they respect me and I respect them. So we have this wonderful grassroots movement here in northern Little Maine, uh, almost a part of Canada sometimes, uh, just getting on with our lives. And they're making a huge difference. And they vote and they're very active, but they're also very respectful. You know, there's not an extremist, uh, like, lunatic left as they keep talking about it. You know, what utter nonsense. These are people who are trying to behave like human beings to make our lives better it's not that they're taking someone else's freedom away they just want to be respected like everybody else there's that's not really quite difficult is it what do you think um last question for you that i i've loved every second of this <laughs> oh so do come to maine everybody else is moving here <laughs> i'm a history buff i love this stuff what do you think of, of the ancient civilization which one do you think was the most advanced which one was the most advanced? Oh, I think they all were at their level. Uh, it just depends. See, what we've inherited is we've re inherited the crumbs of this, these civilizations. Uh, at one point, all of these gods were connected. And that was the point of when I wrote The Missing Lands to show and prove they were all part of an international organization. They just call it by different names. The problem is you have to learn dead languages to understand what the names mean. Once you understand that, you see that there's a thread here. This is why we have pyramids on every continent. Uh, this is why we have the same kind of mounds, the same terminology, the same gods, uh, the same manner of initiation practices. Uh, this wasn't just diffusion. This was part of uh, people reading from the same manual that was given to, to us by people who were here at strategic locations. Most of them now disappeared. So it, it really depends now on what kind of architecture you're into. So depending on how you feel and what your thing is, um, Egypt, of course, comes to mind because it's elegant. I mean, I have a waiting list of 300 people that want to come to me on my tours to Egypt. Uh, I, I could actually die doing these tours and never have to work again. Uh, and it, the, the temples are elegant. They strike something of harmony within people. But then some other people prefer to go to India because that has probably the best stonework anywhere in the world. I mean, if you look at some of the Jain temples or some of the old Buddhist temples, these things leave you speechless as to the quality of the stonework. I've never seen anything like it in the world. But then you go to the Andes and Lake Titicaca, probably one of the oldest temple cities in the world, 15,000 B.C., hardly anything left, but what's there looks like it came out of a machine. 
And, you know, it's, you have to be a very masculine type of person to appreciate what's there because it's very hard linear, but it's beautiful and elegant at the same time. So that attracts you because of those reasons. Uh, or you can go to Yucatan and go to much more feminine temples. They are very elegant. They're very much a limestone created um, series of constructions. And they appeal to a much gentler way of life. Not like the Aztecs. They were different people. But the Maya and the Yucatec people would definitely had something much more connected to the feminine. And you feel that in the temple. So it really depends what you're looking for in terms of what, and what you call a high civilization. But I think uh, from what we have left from all the stories around the world, that they were all reading from the same book. They were all collaborating. And we as hunter-gatherers were kind of like watching on the side, waiting can you give us a few crumbs, uh, please? Which, of course, they would do, but there's only so much you can give hunter-gatherers because you give them too much of the wrong thing, like the small group of watchers that defied orders not to hand human hunter-gatherers certain information, and it created terrible problems, just like those anthropologists in New Guinea. So all in its right time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So um, here's my last question of the night, and I always ask this. You're on the strip in Las Vegas. Oh, God, no. I'm sorry, we've run out of time. <laughs> I hate that place. <laughs> You've got all your books and all your research. And there's a, there's other historians, and you know, an ancient historian. How do you get people to read your books? I don't. Uh, I just put it out there, and I let them make up their own minds. And uh, having done – in fact, I've been asked this before – and I said, well, I don't really try to convince anyone of anything. Uh -huh. If anything, I want you to convince yourself. I'm tr I try to remove myself from the equation as much as possible, which is not uh, entirely possible because, obviously, I have a certain viewpoint. I can't just remove my own ego and my own spirituality out of what I write. Now, that would be inhuman. But I do my best that I can. And I think now that I'm looking back on my body of work, you know, seven books later, um, I do see that, I, uh, and people uh, write about this all the time about my work, and they said, well, you kind of left it up to me to make up my mind. You're not trying to convince me of anything. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm giving you the facts and the breadcrumbs that I've stitched together into a beautiful piece of uh, bread. Uh, do you believe it or not? If you don't, I don't really care. Uh, if you do, fantastic. Has it changed your life? Has it made you a better person? I'm really happy for that. But I'm not trying to convince anyone of anything. I want you to read that. Go back to the information that I read. And my bibliographies are about that thick, which is why it costs more to print the damn books. So I've done my research, okay? But then you have to make up your own mind. Is it, does it hit the accord? Does it, uh, you know, truth has a ring to it, they say. If it has a ring to it and you can apply it in your life, then it must be close to the truth. Uh, that's that's how I look at it. So, yeah, that's I don't try to convince anyone of anything. That's the, the most uh, stupid thing you can, anyone can ever do and pointless thing to do as well because you're only convincing them of your own belief system, and that's how we get into trouble in the first place. So I hope if you ever see me walking around with a big ego trying to convince you of anything, hit me. Okay, just hit me, and I'll be fine. Okay, sounds good to me. Uh Thank you so much for coming on. My pleasure. Really appreciate How can people find you? Oh, right here. No. Um, Invisibletemple.com. Okay. Okay. And where can they get your books? Invisibletemple.com. <laughs> yes, Perfect. don't support that guy that's already a billionaire that flies a penis-shaped uh, rocket to outer space. <laughs> 
You know, here's the reason why all the authors, especially the musicians, are suffering. So, or if you can buy direct from musicians and buy direct from authors, because at least they'll get ten dollars for each book that they sell, as opposed to one dollar or maybe ten cents. Uh, so, yeah, those are the mathematics involved. So if you can buy directly from the people who create stuff, uh, it keeps them going. And uh, if you like what you hear, then, well, there'll be more coming. Fantastic. Again, thank you so much. And well, thanks I for having me on. Learned a lot. I love talking to you. I would love to have you on again sometime. Fantastic. I, uh, you might even talk about ghosts. <laughs> yes, I can pick your brain all day. I tell you, I'm telling you right now. <laughs> But thank you so much. I know it's late for you, but, you know, in Maine, but uh, oh, it's cocktail time. It's ten thirty. It's only cocktail time. Oh, there you go. That's what I should do. Is have a cocktail while I'm doing the show. A, man, a Manhattan to you. That's the answer. <laughs> All right, sir. Well, thank you very much. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. I'll definitely be in touch to get you back on. Okay, if that's okay. Absolutely. With you. All right. Fair enough. Have a good evening. You too. Bye -bye. All right. That was really great. Um, I've been I've been wanting to get him on for a long time. I am a history buff. I love history, ancient history particularly. You know, uh, I was really into humanities in college and stuff. Anyway, tomorrow, we're kind of shifting gears. We're going to talk about a topic that I've been, another topic that I've been rather interested in thinking for a long time. Paul Eno is going to be with us. And Paul Eno uh, has a book out and, and he's been doing research. And he believes that aliens and the paranormal, uh, you know, alien encounters go hand in hand. Remember, when I read from the Mojave incident, I, was t I told you guys that I felt that sometimes as ghost hunters, we might be investigating aliens. He kind of thinks the same way I do. So it's going to be interesting to talk to him and see what he has to say about that. So he'll be here at 6.30 p.m. Pacific tomorrow, the usual time. Um, like I said, remember look, to look us up on TikTok. I'm going to do a meet and greet over on California Haunts Ghostly events probably next next weekend, a week from Saturday. And we can see how that works out, you know, to, to get that page up and going. And if you like the show, share it with five people. If you hated the show, share it with five of your enemies. We are equal opportunities here at California Haunts Radio. And if you are watching from YouTube, please subscribe. You know, the more subscribers, the merrier. And we're looking for as many subscribers as we can possibly get. And if you have trouble finding us on YouTube, the best way to do is to go to CaliforniaHauntsRadio.com. And you click on any video that we have on that page, and it'll take you directly to our 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 our, our page. And uh, if you're interested in looking at all the archives of this show, you can access them all with that at that website, or you can see them all at YouTube. Also, um, I'm just about halfway through the first couple of years of Block Talk Radio archives, which I'm adding to the website as well. It's taking a long time. We were over there ten years, long, 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 long time. So I'm getting all that put together for you guys as well. So you can check those shows out. If you look for us on Apple uh, Media, you'll see that there are two California Haunts radio websites on or you know pages on Apple. That's because the Block Talk shows are on one, and these shows are on the other. So it's it's kind of confusing, but you know you can find us either way. Either way, you'll get good guests. You know, either way, it's a win-win. Anyway, I want to thank you all for coming tonight. Um, you see that ticker at the bottom of the page? That's because California Haunts, um, we, we don't charge for our services. And uh, we mainly survive off donations. And the radio show is no different. And I have to pay bill, internet bills and computer things if things break or whatever happens out of my pocket. It all comes out of my pocket, even the paranormal group. So if you could help me out a little bit, that would be great at paypal.me at California Haunts. 
If not, uh, if you're not comfortable with PayPal, Venmo, just type in California Haunts. Or you can go to our podcast feed over at RSS, California Haunts Radio, and there's a donate button there, and it's really easy from that point. Anyway, I want to thank everybody, and I'm going to sign off here. And since he, he, he wants you guys to go to his website, you have that website. So if, you, if you're interested in any of his books or anything like that, go, you know, go ahead and go to that website and uh, check everything out. But I appreciate you all coming tonight, and uh, I will see you tomorrow at 6.30 p.m. Pacific. Have a good night.